Please be seated. Amen, amen. What a good, good morning of worship. And thank the Lord that we can gather in this place on this Independence Day uh, free from persecution. You know, we woke up this morning. Um, maybe you set alarm, maybe you didn't. You woke up, you decided to come to church today. You didn't have to hide in the trunk of a car to get to church. You didn't have to go to church in somebody's basement under the cover of night. Instead, you woke up, you just came here. You got out of your car, you walked through those doors, you went to Sunday school, you found your way into this place, and now we stand here in this place and publicly proclaim and give glory to God. Praise God that we have our independence to come here and worship Him in this place today. Praise the Lord. God is so good to us. I want to invite our children to come up. Any kids want to come up here and see what this thing is up here? You guys want to come up here? Any other kids? If you're a child, come on up here. We're going to chat for just a minute. Come up and have a seat right here. All right, here we go. All right, come on up, Danielle. Are you guys doing well today? It's good to see you guys. Look, you're so handsome and pretty. I'm so excited you came up to join me up here. Let me ask you guys a question. Do you guys know what this thing is? A megaphone. Now, what does a megaphone do? Let's you talk. So when you talk into one of these, what happens? It gets really loud like that. Right? You want to try? Stop that noise. Oh. Woof. You can come up when I preach and right here, when people make noise, you can use this and yell at them, okay? <laughs> I'm just kidding. He will do that. He'll be up here. Do you want to try? No. Anybody else? Oh, you just want to raise your hand? Did you want to try? La, 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 la. Very good. Do you want to try, Abel? Perfect. Now, the neat thing about a megaphone is that we can use this to project our voice to get attention from a crowd of people to ourselves, right? So, what we're going to talk about today in my sermon is that God has given us the ability to tell people about Jesus. Do you know that God wants us to give him glory by joining in his global mission and making Jesus the center of our life? That means, very simply, God is going to give you in your life a, a time when you, you have a megaphone like this and people's hearts will be open for you to speak into their life and to tell them about Jesus. And you know when you tell them about Jesus, you know sometimes what's going to happen? They're going to follow Jesus. Because God used you to share the gospel with them. To share the good news about what Jesus has done in your life. Now listen, we have an opportunity in our life to use a megaphone like this, which means to stand in front of people, and we can draw attention to ourselves, or we can draw attention to God by telling people about Jesus. So what do we want to do? Tell people about God. Now repeat after me. Ready? Ready? Give God glory. Give God glory. By joining his global mission. And making Jesus the center of your life. That's the sermon today. So you guys got it. So if you want to go sit down and you have candy to eat, 
or whatever, go see Mr. Oscar. He's probably got a pocket full of candy. You got it. That's the sermon for today. So tell people about Jesus. Use the platform God's given you to share the gospel, all right? The word of the day today is Simon. So if you want to count how many times today I say the word Simon, write it down. Let me know at the end of the sermon, okay? All right. Thank you, guys. You did awesome. All right, the rest of you, if you would take out a copy of God's Word with me this morning, open up to Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8 this morning. We're going to talk about Simon the Satanic Sumerian, Simon the Satanic Sumerian, and the point of the message today, which I just told your kids, is simple. This passage teaches us to give God glory by joining His global mission. Give God glory by joining His global mission. Give God glory by joining His global mission and making Jesus the center of your life. Give God glory by joining His global mission and making Jesus the center of your life. Let's look at the text. Acts chapter 8, beginning verse 9. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be someone great. They all paid attention to him, from the least of them to the greatest. And they said, this man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. So let me draw you into and introduce the context of this message and where we're at. We're in Samaria. It's a, an area to the northwest of Jerusalem full of Samaritans. Just at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, a terrible, terrible persecution had broke loose in Jerusalem. At the end of chapter 7, Stephen, one of the early deacons and servants of the church, one of the seven chosen to serve the widows, was brought into an illegal trial. He was stoned to death. And at that point, the Bible says that this horrible persecution broke out in Jerusalem. It says next that everybody except the apostles, all the believers, left Jerusalem and scattered into the neighboring regions, specifically into outside of Judea, outside of Jerusalem into Judea, and then Samaria. So then we move forward to this point in time. One of those seven men who was chosen by the church to serve the widows named Philip full of the power of God and following the Holy Spirit, leaves Jerusalem, goes into an area to the north, east, northwest called Samaria. Philip goes under the power and the authority of God and starts to share the gospel. His sharing of the gospel is accompanied by signs and wonders. People are being healed of diseases. They're seeing the power of God fall upon them, and they're giving glory to God. Philip then shares the gospel with them, and the people are starting to follow Jesus. And so, this is what's happening in Samaria. Now, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, introduces us to this man who lives in Samaria named Simon. Luke describes Simon as a man who previously practiced sorcery in the city. Now, you've probably been on a cruise or maybe down to one of the restaurants downtown here and you've seen someone doing uh, what they call magic tricks or illusion, right? Have y'all ever seen any shows like that? And those things are amazing, right? 
Those tricks of illusion where they, they pick a card out of your ear or grab a coin that's supposed to be on the other side of the room. But, but those people, they're, they're doing illusion. They're, they're, they're tricking your, your mind and your brain because they, they do things that you can't see. What Simon is doing here is not illusion. Simon is attached to and doing the work of the enemy, Satan. His work here, his sorcery, is satanic in nature. It's not illusion. And he had gathered around himself the town. And they had seen the things that he was doing. And he earned a nickname as the great power of God. In fact, Simon was so powerful that the people gathered around him and they considered him to be a man of great importance. Now, what's very interesting about this is that Samaritans were a group of people who used to be Jews, and then after a time of occupation, they intermarried with outside people groups and became a very specific group. And the Jews in, in Judea, they, they believed that the Samaritans weren't really Jews, that they were sort of, they called them half-breeds, and, and there was racial tension between them. But the, the, the Samaritans didn't follow God the way God had described in the law for them to follow Him. And it shows at this time they're being led astray by this sorcerer named Simon. Everyone in the city, it says in this text, from the least to the most important, knew Simon and paid attention to him. In fact, he was so powerful, they called him the great power of God. They believed, in fact, that Simon didn't work for the enemy Satan, but that he was one who was sent by God for the people of Samaria. And his reputation for astonishing the people was his evidence of his divinity. But Philip had something better to offer. Something much better. He offered salvation. Salvation from sin through the sacrifice offered by Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, what we're going to learn in this part of the message is that Simon isn't the great power of God, but Jesus is. And what Simon would do was, in fact, just parlor tricks compared to what Jesus accomplished on the cross and the shedding of his blood, his death and resurrection from the dead. So Philip is sharing the gospel. People are excited to see what he's doing. And sort of in the background... You've got this man named Simon doing things that are similar, but leading the people astray. That brings us to verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed. And after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. Up to this point, the crowds had gathered and were amazed at the signs and the miracles that Philip performed in conjunction with his preaching of the gospel. The gospel is, of course, this good news about Jesus, the man who came and lived a perfect life, who gave his life on the cross as an atonement for the sins of the world. That if someone turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus as Lord and Savior, they can be saved from the wrath of God, reconciled to Him, 
and given eternal life. That that Jesus died on the cross, that he was buried in the ground, and on the third day he rose again. This is the essence of the gospel that Philip is sharing in Samaria. And according to this text, the people in Samaria believed Philip and this gospel, and many were baptized. Their amazement turns to belief, and those who, were belie- those who believed were immediately baptized as a symbol of their decision to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. Verse 13 reports that even Simon believed the gospel and was baptized. Furthermore, Simon continued to spend time with Philip and watch what he was doing, amazed at this power that appeared to be coming from him. I would equate that to the way that people follow a rock star. This happened in Jesus' ministry as well. People would see what Jesus did they would see the, the lame to be healed. The people who couldn't hear could hear. The people that couldn't see could see. They would see that and they gathered around Jesus. But at certain times, Jesus recognized that they were just around him because of the miracles and not necessarily because of the salvation that he provided for them. It seems to me that Simon's presence was not one of true belief in the gospel, but one of infatuation with the power that came from him Well, how do we know if Simon was really saved? In fact, how do we know if anyone is saved? I want to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. This text I added, so it's not going to be on the screen, I don't think, today. Matthew 7, if you don't have the Bible, you can just listen to me or bring it up on your phone. In this context, it talks about false prophets and how to know the difference between if someone really is a prophet sent by God and if someone is not a prophet sent by God. So this, of course, would apply to Simon as someone who claims to be sent from God. He says, this is Jesus speaking, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You 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 will know them by the fruits. Grapes are not gathered from bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. And then finally in verse 20, you will know them by their fruits. So how do we find out if this man, Simon, was really saved? Well, we're going to find out in a few minutes according to his fruit, whether he is or not. And in application, we can even apply that to our own lives, of course, The Lord is the only one that knows if you're saved. That's between you and Him. But as fellow believers walking in this earth, we do have a way to have reassurance that we're following Jesus. We look behind us at our life. What is my fruit? Is my life producing fruit that gives glory to God or not? If you're living a biblical life that produces fruit, that honors God, then you should be reassured as a believer and a follower of Jesus. That should bring joy to your heart and satisfaction to your soul. If you look back and you don't see fruit leading to glory to God, then you should look back and perhaps you need to repent of sin or or be saved. But we can know by our fruit. And Simon's fruit will certainly show him to be 
and non-believer. The gospel is amazing. And God empowers us to proclaim his power and authority above everything and everyone else. Did you know that? We are uniquely situated in God's economy of salvation to be the one with the megaphone to proclaim the gospel. Did you know that? I know that you guys know that. We're the one called by God to go out into this world and to tell people about Jesus. You're it, believer. If you're a born-again believer in Jesus, you're it. You're the one that God called to make Jesus famous, to make him known, and to lead people to salvation through the power of the Holy Spirit so the dead could live, so the broken could be fixed and restored to God. Jesus and the way he saved our lives should be the focus of our lives. So let me just like let you off the hook, okay? Simon, and Simon's primary problem was that he was searching for greatness through his own power and his own authority. In fact, he loved, I'm sure, being called the great power of God. But as believers, we are not called to search for greatness in and of ourselves. We are called to give glory to God. To find our satisfaction in Him. So we can stop searching and seeking after greatness. Instead, start seeking and searching after God and His glory in your life. People should be drawn to us not because of us, ourselves, and our own greatness, but because of what God does through us. Let me give you an example. There was a man in my life when I was in, um, I can't remember now, I was either third, fourth, or fifth grade, and um, in the church that I was attending, uh, I didn't hear a whole lot of the gospel when I was a kid. It was different. Um, this man, on my Wednesday night class that I would go to, um, at the direction and command of my mother, um, he shared the gospel with, with the class. Every Wednesday night, class was about Jesus. It was about the Word of God, and specifically, it was about the gospel and about what Jesus did in his life and how Jesus desired to change my life through the gospel. I still remember Steve and the way that he almost would glow as he stood in front of that class and told us about Jesus. He understood the purpose of life, to give God glory. That's the first thing we see here. And the difference between Philip and Simon. Philip existed and lived every single day, as we see in this text, to give God glory. Simon existed to give himself glory. Philip existed and sought to draw people's attention to the cross. Simon existed to draw people's attention to himself. So the first thing we remember here today, first thing, give God glory. Glory. 
give God glory. So Philip's ministry in Samaria starts to make some waves. Why? Why is it pointed out in Acts chapter 8 that people are being saved and baptized? Why is that a big deal? Well, where did Christianity start? In Jerusalem. With the Jews. Right? So now Philip has been scattered by persecution. He's gone into Samaria. Remember, the Samaritans are people that the Jews really didn't like. And there was some significant racial tension between those two groups. Let me tell you how bad it was. If someone's going to leave Jerusalem and go north, like up to Nazareth or up to the Galilean region, they would cross the River Jordan and go around the long way just so they wouldn't walk through Samaria. That's how bad it was. They, they were not in a car, right, like we would be. It's not like adding five minutes to your trip. Like this is a long time added to the trip. It was a big deal. So it was also a big deal that Philip went into Samaria, started preaching the gospel, and that the people there appeared to be believing the gospel and following Jesus. So he's going to make some waves. So what's going to happen next is some of the apostles in Jerusalem are going to take notice of what's happening in Samaria, and they're going to go check this out. What we're going to learn next, so the second part of our life and our purpose is to join God in his global mission. So we give God glory by joining him in his global mission. Verse 14, this is where it all begins. When the apostles who were in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Well, Peter and John, that's kind of a big deal. Inside of Jesus' inner circle of three, they're going to go check out and see what's going on. All right, verse 15. After they went down there, they prayed for them so that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet come down on them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. I wonder if in the midst of the things that God was doing at this time, the apostles were a bit surprised that the Samaritans were saved. You know, they had to have been like, well, we know that Jesus said that he wants the world to hear the gospel, but surely he doesn't actually mean the Samaritans, right? Yeah, he did. It's exactly who he meant. So upon hearing about this movement of God in Samaria, Peter and John travel down out of Jerusalem, meaning down the mountain, and they go to check things out. They get there and they see this is a legitimate movement of God and Philip is indeed preaching the legitimate gospel about Jesus. Upon seeing the legitimacy of their conversion, which is evidenced by God's power at work through Philip, they prayed for the Samaritan believers so that they might also receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 16 says, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so this is sort of confusing for us. Because we understand, as the Bible teaches, that when you turn from sin and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you're saved. You're born again. And that process takes place through the power of the Holy Spirit, who then immediately dwells within you. We find that in passages like 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 8 and Ephesians chapter 1, that believers receive the Holy Spirit immediately upon conversion. 
This special praying over and laying on of hands over the Samaritans by Peter and John, subsequent to their receiving of the Holy Spirit, was a unique and special process. I believe it only happens during this time for two specific reasons. One, to unify the church across ethnic lines. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll see the the first century church At every stage, they seem to be surprised that Jesus wants to save other people besides the Jews, right? So first you see, it's in Jerusalem, Jews are being saved, hallelujah, Jesus is awesome, we're growing in Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden persecution starts at the end of chapter 7 of the book of Acts. Believers kind of disperse into Judea and Samaria with the gospel. Philip goes into Samaria, preaches the gospel. The Samaritans are now being saved. Again, they're kind of surprised like, oh, Jesus died for us and the Samaritans. But they're kind of like cousins to us, so we understand that. Well, you know what happens after that? Then God sends Peter out to the Gentiles a little further away from Jerusalem, and he shares the gospel, and then Paul later does the same thing, and guess what happens? The Gentiles, the non-Jews, the people very far from Judaism and Jerusalem start to be saved. And all of a sudden, again, the church is like, oh, Jesus actually died for everybody. Wait, I think I remember him telling me something about this in Acts 1.8. And so this is what happens. This particular event of sharing, of laying out of hands and praying, I believe happened Specifically, so the early church would know that God wants also the Samaritans and ultimately all people to receive, to hear the gospel. I think it was also done second to show the apostles who lead the early church that God intended for all people everywhere to hear the gospel and be saved. That God has a heart for the nations. One author named Bach writes this, There is no set pattern to the dispensing of the Spirit in Acts at various junctures, God acts in different ways for different purposes. But normally what we see, the pattern in New Testament writing and in our experience today is that upon uh, repentance and belief in the gospel, someone is born again and in that moment receives the Holy Spirit who indwells them forever. The clear point of this part of our passage is that God intends to fulfill Acts 1.8. Take your Bibles, flip back a few pages. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is the funny thing. Every time a new section of Acts 1.8 was fulfilled, the church was very surprised that God was going to do this. Right? And sometimes we look back and we're like, how could you guys be so boneheaded and not understand that God wanted this to happen? Well, because we're never boneheaded, right? We get everything from God the very first time, right? Not you guys, but other people, other believers in other churches sometimes struggle with faith, right? Not you. Well, the early church had the same struggle that we do in hearing and receiving and obeying the Word of God. So this is, this is Jesus telling the church, this is what you're going to do, right? This is your mission, and this is what I'm going to do through you. This isn't just the apostles who heard this. This isn't just applied to them. This is applied to you and I as well. Jesus gives a promise, and then he says, what's going to happen after that? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Right? You're a born-again believer in Jesus, so you've got the Holy Spirit. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
So the gospel now is, in this point in Acts, we're at in Acts chapter 8, the gospel has left Jerusalem. It's now traveled into Judea and Samaria. So we fulfilled the first three parts of Acts 1.8, and then it says, and to the ends of the earth. That's where we are today. We are today, the believers, fulfilling Acts 1.8 and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. God is so good to us and gracious in giving us His Holy Spirit to dwell within us and empower us to fulfill this mission. We're not capable of doing it on our own and praise God that He doesn't expect us to. He gives us His Spirit to go with us into those circumstances in proclaiming the gospel. He also provides a common link between all of us that creates an unbreakable, eternal bond. You know, there's people all over this world that are being saved today, right now. And did you know that we're not the only ones that will be in heaven? Did you know that? There's going to be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation in heaven with us worshiping God at His throne. Where is that, I wonder, in the Bible? How do I know that's true? Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. This is John's revelation looking sometime into the future and a promise from God. After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Between this point in Acts, when the gospel just now has traveled into Samaria, and the time when Jesus returns to culminate or end the church age, our call is to go to every nation, to all people everywhere, and proclaim the gospel. And there will be representatives from every tribe, tongue, and nation there at the throne with us, worshiping God. In the very same fashion, the way that God united the Jews and the Samaritans here in this part of the text, He also unites all believers everywhere through the indwelling Holy Spirit around Jesus and the purpose of the Great Commission. That same Holy Spirit unites all people. He unites Americans and Mexicans. He, he unites blacks and whites. He, he unites Chinese and Russian-speaking people. We're all united by Christ for one purpose. To fulfill the Great Commission. To take the Gospel to the ends of the earth. I've gotten to see this in a very small way in the past. I had an opportunity to go and teach a big group of pastors one time, and um, I don't know if I've ever come as close to seeing what the throne of God is going to look like than in this moment when I was, I was teaching these pastors 
And what I was saying in English was being translated into like six different languages. So I would say something like, God calls us to fulfill the Great Commission. And then I would hear it translated into six languages. Blah, 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 blah. And it was like, hmm. And then sometimes, because these, were, these weren't, you know, American pastors. These were pastors from all around the world. Then they would discuss what was just said. Blah, 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 blah. And then they would look up and they would agree. Yep. Amen. Yep. Then I would say something else and it would just... And then we sang together and, and prayed together and it was done in English and all kinds of different languages. Translated. That's what it's going to be like at the throne, although I don't think we'll probably be speaking different languages there. But people from every tribe and tongue and nation, we're all going to be there gathered together. Why? Because we're unified under the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit. Now that has a very sharp and piercing application to our life. One, it's not about you. Right? This life is not about you, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. Two, we need to stop focusing on the things that divide us and start focusing on the things that unite us. Primarily, the indwelling Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. If an army behaved the way that the Christian church behaves, it would easily lose every single battle. Right, Matthew? We are the army of God. We've been given immeasurable, infinite power by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit within us to fight every single spiritual battle, to have victory in every single spiritual battle, and to march out into that world and to proclaim a gospel. We've got to stop messing around, and we've got to start uniting around Jesus and doing what we've been called to do, which is proclaim the gospel so lost people can be saved. The danger of our pop culture today is that it is infiltrating the church and causing us to lose our focus from the cross and to start focusing on ourselves. Let's instead stand out in a culture. And let's stand for Jesus. I think that we could be one of the most diverse churches in the state of Florida. We have people from many, many tribes, tongues, and nations in this church. We have a unique opportunity to show the world what it looks like when people come together under one leader, the Lord Jesus. Under one purpose, proclaiming the gospel. Church, let us go forward with that as the focus of our lives. Give glory to God by joining His global mission. Finally, we've got to do that also by making Jesus the center of our lives. Give glory to God by joining His global mission and by making Jesus the center of your life. That's exactly what Simon is not willing to do. Let's look at the text. Verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given 
through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Now we get to the point of Simon's intentions. What does Simon want? More power. More authority. He wants to follow Jesus to the extent that he's able to receive the power and authority that he saw displayed in his community. He didn't really desire to surrender his life under the lordship and authority of Jesus. Instead, to increase his capital in the eyes of the people of his town. Simon obviously didn't understand the power with which he is dealing. The truth is that no one controls God and no one controls the Holy Spirit. The parlor tricks and demonic incantations that Simon used to amaze the crowds were nothing in comparison to the way that God moved among the Samaritan people. So Peter answers him. You remember reading, um, as I preached through, I guess about a year and a half ago, the book of John? Do y'all remember that? I did that in case you can't remember. It was like a year and a half long. So I preached through the Gospel of John, and and I always felt bad for Peter, right? Because Peter always seemed to be like at the sharp end of Jesus' teaching, right? Peter would say something. He'd like it was like the other apostles would all push Peter to the front. And then he would stand in front of Jesus and make some proclamation. And then Jesus would say, get behind me, Satan. And that was it. The balloon is popped. Peter goes to the back of the line. Or Peter would say, I'm never, ever going to leave you. I'm never going to turn away from you. And and Jesus said, you're going to actually do that today. And to the end of the line. That same gusto... That same willingness to be the one in the front of the line is what made Peter special for the gospel. It also shows that we can keep making mistakes, right? And when we're repentant, God brings us back, right? So you've never made too many mistakes to come back to Jesus, just so you know that, right? Peter is a living example, and me too. He'll always take you back. He loves you. Anyway, let's get back in here. Verse 20. Peter's got the gusto, he's got the power and the authority, and he's not afraid to speak his mind. So thankfully in this, t- this context, he's grown in his faith in Jesus. So God's going to use him to protect the church. Verse 20, Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. So Peter's now, he's like a, at another level. He's now the one with the sword of the, of the, of the word of God piercing the heart right now. What Peter tells us and what is clear in Scripture is salvation is something that we receive by faith alone in Jesus, by grace alone. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we can purchase. You can't live a a good enough life to find favor with God. You don't need to. It's a gift. It's something He's given you. By sending Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. Jesus purchased your salvation by allowing himself to be put up on that cross and by shedding his blood and receiving the wrath of God on your behalf. You don't have enough money to buy and to account for the value of what Jesus did. You don't have enough good works to 
to measure up to what God requires. That's the bad news. The good news is you don't need to because Jesus gives you that free gift and asks you to receive it by faith. And it's through God's grace that we're saved. So Peter continues on. He doesn't just end it right there. I might have been tempted to be verse 20 and verse 21, Peter, telling him, how dare you try and buy this? Get on out of here. That's not what he does. Look at verse 22. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. So Peter then gives him an opportunity to repent. He calls upon him to turn away from this this sin that inside of his heart. You see, there's always a chance, even for Simon, in this moment, there's a chance for him to turn from his sin and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Maybe you're like Simon today. It's not too late for you. You can be saved. Simon replies, and it is perhaps the most interesting reply I've heard someone say in Scripture to the Gospel, one of them at least, it's, he says in verse 24, Pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. It seems really out of place when you read that. Why would Peter say, you need to turn away from this wickedness and, and repent of it and find Jesus? He's like, you need Jesus. You need to ask Jesus to forgive you. His response was, why don't you pray to Jesus and ask him not to do that to me? Now, if you'd ever been overseas or been exposed to any of the other religious systems of the world, many of them are plagued with, with um, witchcraft and, and all kinds of uh, religious leaders that claim to be uh, sent by God but are in fact workers for Satan. And what they do in many of these religious systems is they'll claim to place a curse on somebody else, right? Probably heard that or seen that on TV. So what Simon, what I think Simon's doing here, is he, he kind of believes that Peter just sort of laid this curse on him, and he wants Peter to pray to his Lord and ask him to take this curse away. Like, you know, I don't want that over my head. Will you just, you know, pray and just take that away? I'm, I'm sorry I made you mad, but make this better because I, I don't want this hanging over my head. And that's devastating news. It's devastating. Because it is evidence that he's not turning to Jesus. Instead, he still doesn't get it. He still won't turn from sin and trust in Jesus as Savior. You see, Simon's problem is that he wants to follow Jesus on his own terms. Whoo, now it's hitting home. Now it's hitting home. This is where it hit home in my heart. Jesus calls us to turn from our sin, trust in Him as Lord and Savior. What that means is that we both believe the gospel, but we also hand over the authority of our life to Jesus. We're literally telling Him He's the boss. We don't get to have the benefit of of the salvation provided by Jesus without handing our life over to Him. That's what He calls us to do. That's actually when we believe the gospel, that's what we want to do. Because we recognize him for who he is and what he wants to do in our life. Simon's trouble, his problem, was he saw the power and he saw what God was doing in the midst of him in Samaria. 
And he wanted to be a part of that, but he wasn't really ready to give up the authority in his own life. Which is evidenced by the fact that he tried to buy it. So when we, when we think about that, and we apply that to our own lives, we're confronted with this, this question that sort of pries into our hearts. Is Jesus in total control over my life today? I mean, if, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus yet, you need to make that decision for the very first time today. Like, I'm, I'm going to turn from my sin, and, and this life that I was living has not led me to the joy and happiness I thought it would. I'm going to turn away from that, and this man is telling me about this life that God has for me, and, and I want that life. I want to go that way. Maybe that's you today, and we're going to give you a chance to do that. Or maybe you're a follower of Jesus today, and maybe right now, or maybe at this point in this season, you're not following him. Maybe he's told you very obviously, I want you to go this way, and you're saying, I'm not going that way, I'm going to go over here. We're called to follow him, to surrender to him, for him to be the Lord of our lives. And that's the, the call today. So in just a minute, we're, we're going to invite our team back up now, and we're going to have a time of invitation. And if you're not familiar with this, in a minute, everybody's going to stand up. And um, we're going to sing a song together, but it gives people an opportunity to respond to what I just said. If you've not yet made that decision to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, when everybody stands up and we start singing, I want you to come down here with me. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm just going to show you the way to Jesus and to salvation. Or maybe you need to come up and you just need to pray. This will be open for you to pray. Maybe God's called you to make some kind of decision. This is the moment of decision. If the Holy Spirit's been working in your heart today, if you feel compelled by Him to do something, come forward and share that with me. I'll pray with you. We'll help you take those next steps. Everyone, please stand now. Heavenly Father, I pray over this time as we respond to Your Word. I pray right now that You would give us faith to take that step of faith. Whether it's someone here who needs to be saved, who needs to make that decision for the very first time to follow you as Lord and Savior, or another who already has but wants to renew that relationship or engage in some kind of ministry, join this church, be baptized, whatever it is, God, help us to have the courage to step forward and to declare that to you today in the company of our brothers and sisters here in this place. We love you, God. We trust you in all things. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.